The Start On Demand. The world was left stunned on Sunday by the news that Kobe Bryant, legendary basketball player, has died at the age of 41 in a helicopter crash, along with eight other people, including his 13-year-old daughter, Gianna. We'll speak with the coach of the men's basketball team at the University of Manitoba about the legacy of one of the greatest of all time. Medical service calls are up, way up, for the Winnipeg Fire Paramedic Service, and yet they still have the same number of ambulances, and their sick days are going up. We'll speak with the Deputy Chief of Operations about this unsettling trend. We'll continue the conversation from Friday on what makes a city a big city as it pertains to Uber and Lyft, since Winnipeg is now the only major city in Western Canada to not have the ride-sharing services. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Monday, January 27th podcast for The Start. Yesterday afternoon, get a communique from one Greg Mackling. I'm sitting in the parking lot at Sobeys on Plessy, and I, I had to stop, and it was one of those moments where you have to stop and kind of look and go, am I reading this correctly? And, uh, and then read the name that you texted us where you said Kobe Bryant killed in helicopter crash. You sent us that at 1.41, and within 20 minutes, half an hour, it was all over the news, it was all over everywhere. I was, I'm just still am dumbfounded at the knowledge that Kobe Bryant has died along with his daughter and seven other people. It's one of those surreal moments. I think many of us, if not all of us, will remember when we heard the the news that uh, this young man, someone who lived on the world stage for the better part of two decades, uh, has been lost in this tragic fashion. Never mind his daughter, who was, by all accounts, a budding basketball superstar. Questions about whether she never... let alone might she aim to play in the WNBA, might she aim to play in the NBA? Questions that were asked about Gianna's ability on the basketball court at just 13 years old. It's, uh, yeah, it's uh, absolutely uh, surreal to uh, imagine that this has gone down, Loren. I think that's the fascinating part, too, for many of us, because I'm not a basketball fan. I, of course, know of him and have heard all of the accolades and, you know, the goods and the bads and all that kind of stuff with Kobe Bryant. And, but then I got a text from my mom who was so shocked by it. And I think for many of us, it's really just more the idea of this person uh, taken out just days after, was it a day after LeBron James took his record, right? And so he had tweeted at him about, you know, carrying on uh, the game and, and helping to set records and all the rest and sort of he's moving on to this next phase of his life and then doesn't get to and I think even if you're not a basketball fan there's something about that that being 41 years old about choosing this time in your life to to now focus on your family or your kids or whatever the next thing is and then not getting to and that's a very real scenario for many of us and a fear even in some ways right that you'll get to that point and say oh, good, I can take a breath and now try something else, and you don't get to. And then to hear the daughter, I think that's what, for me, just the saddest part is is that wife at home thinking about her husband's gone, and she's got to raise four kids. No, now her husband and her daughter are gone, and that's a whole other layer to the tragedy. Kobe Bryant, essentially the exact same age as you guys, same age as my wife, and Gianna the same age as my boys. Mm-hmm. So you imagine, it's it's impossible not to imagine living that nightmare on 
in the same sort of fashion. Uh, so uh, condolences to everyone involved. And of course, we're learning some of the identities of the other folks, the other seven people aboard that helicopter, which crashed in the in the hills just uh, north of Malibu and in Southern California. We'll have more on this at 6.37 and at 8.07 we are going to speak to University of Manitoba men's basketball coach Kirby Shep on the influence and legacy of Kobe Bryant. Also today we want to continue a conversation that we started on Friday. The question was what makes a city a big city and Greg you had a rather spirited discussion on Twitter over the weekend as it pertains to Uber and Lyft. Yeah Uber and Lyft now uh, available in the lower mainland of British Columbia in most of Metro Vancouver. Surrey is trying to keep them out, but that's a whole other side story. Vancouver and Whistler now uh, the domain of Uber and Lyft and people in the lower mainland, not unanimously by any stretch, celebrating the fact that this option for transportation has come to their city. It means Winnipeg is now the only major city in Western Canada without Lyft. It's the biggest city in Canada without Uber and Lyft. And I just asked a simple question. Our city, Winnipeg, now becomes the only major city in Western Canada without Uber and Lyft. Are you okay with that? And lots of people are okay with it. Based on the business model of those two companies, uh, many are okay with not having them in our community, but others are pointing to it and saying, hey, this but is one more reason why Winnipeg is not a major city. Is this really an example about Uber itself not being here for you, or is it more just the idea that a big brand, once again, isn't being allowed to operate in Winnipeg or isn't here? It's more about, to me, it's more about the image that that creates. We had that conversation last week about the mayor always coming out saying we're a big city, and now we need to act like a big city, and that had listeners texting in about you know, that they had booked meetings here for their staff and flew all their staff in and their staff get to the airport and they can't get on a, a light rail transit or they can't get on a subway or they can't take an Uber and all the things that you expect or you come to identify with big cities aren't necessarily here. So is it actual Uber itself for you or is it more just the idea that something big that help, helps creates that identity as a big city doesn't exist in Winnipeg? Yeah, I, uh, and on the subject of just getting around in Winnipeg, I mm-hmm. didn't take. I took a cab home when I went out on Saturday, but I took a bus downtown from Osborne Village to downtown. And again, like I don't take the bus often, and this is the reason why. It was eight minutes late. Again, not the end of the world. It's only eight minutes. But when you're already standing there for five, ten minutes waiting for this bus that is supposed to come at 7.01 and it doesn't come until 7.09, that just makes me think I can't rely on this service. And it wasn't like the last time I took the bus was in November and it was snowing that night. So I understand why traffic was slow, but there was no reason on Saturday for that problem. So that's another part of the big city component is the fact that while I took transit for years and it's a good service, I think overall, but it's not a reliable service. Reliability and frequency is a big part of the conversation about where Winnipeg Transit needs to go, regardless of the mode of transportation, because there are lots of people clamoring and and yelling from the rooftops, we need LRT, we need different forms of, of transportation. That aside... The whole idea that you could stand at your front door, in your kitchen, wherever in your home, and track the skip the dishes vehicle coming to and knowing exactly when they're going to bring you your ribs and mashed potatoes, but you're not going to know when your bus is exactly going to show up at the bus stop, I think is frustrating notion to a lot of people. One of the greatest tweets I saw over the weekend was after the mayor gave his 
State of the City speech on Friday, talking about that the future is transit and bus transit, and that this isn't your grandparents' transit system anymore. And that had some people, like our friend Brent Bellamy, who's an architect, replying, "Well, sorry, but my grandparents' transit system was actually pretty decent, and they showed the streetcars and the electric rail that was going, and you know all the different things that were happening back right. in their grandparents' generation that we stripped away, started back at zero again, and then have slowly built our way back up." So for me, the transit question—I don't care if it's a fast bus or a light rail, but move faster on developing it. We're still only got one one fast route from the U of M. Which still isn't done. Which still isn't done downtown, and that's it. And we're still talking about what will be the next fast route. Well, like, stop saying fast because this isn't being filled <laughs> fast at all. There's no question about that. And when you talk about that uh, tweet from Brent Bellamy also pointed out that our population... 50 years ago was half of what it is now, but we had twice as many transit users versus what we have today. So uh, that's a compelling argument for the idea of having things available to you all the time, like the streetcars were on certain routes once upon a time. And just a heads up as well, in case you missed the total from Friday for the HSC Foundation Hope to Life Radiothon, your generosity helped them destroy their fundraising goal of $175,000. The total, $212,285.70. Thank you once again, Manitoba. Thank you to the listeners of 680 CJOB for coming through in a huge way to serve Manitoba's hospital. We start this hour with the number of medical calls that paramedics are getting in Winnipeg are on the rise. New numbers showing Winnipeg's WFPS and EMS crews responded to more than 89,000 medical calls in 2019. And that number is up 32% from the number of calls they took four years ago. We've been hearing for months now just how busy our first responders are, and these numbers are showing it. Yet in that same period, the number of ambulances working an average day have remained the same, about 28 at any given period. Christian Schmidt is the Deputy Chief of Operations for the WFPS and joins us in studio now. Good morning. Thanks for being here, Christian. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Let's just start with the rise in calls. Is there one single thing we can can attribute to a 32% rise over four years? I think uh, largely we're looking at population growth. So if we look at what's happening in Winnipeg in terms of our population, we are growing. And I think if we look uh, in terms of the numbers of incidents that we're seeing, that's likely uh, one of the largest driving factors. But the population growth, I think we did the numbers last week because we've been talking to police about the calls being on the rise. I think it's only up, say, 48% in that same period. And you're talking about a 32% rise in calls. So is there something else that we're seeing that would mean that you're receiving that number of 911? Sure. Within that population, too, we know that there's a couple of demographics that... uh, that are driving uh, the response numbers, and that is uh, people in the age categories above 65 years of age, and then also in the age categories of 25 to 35 years of age. We know that those two uh, two particular categories are driving some of the numbers. So at the very least, uh, in my mind, we should be seeing an increase in resources at least equal to population increase. If you can't match the increased calls for service, at the very least, you should be matching the increase in population growth. So in terms of that, our funding um, has been holding steady at basically at 2016 funding levels. And all of the changes that we've had to make uh, internally at Fire Paramedic Service in order to address uh, 
the call volumes have been basically internal changes. So in the last couple of years, we've done things like uh, redefine how we do interfacility transport. So at one time, we had dedicated ambulances that solely did interfacility transports. What that resulted in is sometimes ambulances moving between facilities that were empty. So in other words, going from one site to another to pick up patients. Um, so we've moved away from that type of a model to a model where any ambulance in the system can do an interfacility transport. And so when our dispatchers see a unit at a facility that has a patient coming out on IFT, they will then assign that unit. So that's a good example of an internal efficiency. Uh, we've basically been looking at all parts of our system and trying to be more efficient with what we have, but we're getting to the point where uh, it is becoming uh, difficult to sustain. I want to pick up on that because we have spoken to um, paramedics you know, anecdotally off the record who will share with us the idea that particularly on the overnight shift and that peak shift, I think it's from 1 a.m. to 9 a.m. If I have those hours right, there might be only 17 ambulances on the road and they often find themselves in a resource situation where uh, there might not be any other ambulance to respond to that call. So how often are you finding that your shifts are dealing with a situation where the calls are coming in, but they're this close to maybe not having a crew that can get to them or at least get to them in a timely fashion because you're taxed to the max? So there's a few indicators that we can look at that show us those types of pressures. So one of them would be an indicator where we measure the number of minutes uh, per month where we have zero ambulances available. Uh, that number is still quite low, uh, however, it is increasing. When we look at those numbers over the course of a 12-month period for 2019, we see those numbers starting to creep up back to levels uh, that we had uh, seen in the early 2000s. Uh, so that, that is an indicator. We also have indicators such as our response times. So uh, we look at a target of 8 minutes 59 seconds to have a, an emergency ambulance at a patient's side. We're starting to see numbers uh, now increasing up to 13 minutes in order to have that ambulance um, at the patient's side. We've been able to manage, uh, you know, with the resources that we have largely in part here in Winnipeg due to the integrated model that we have uh, with both fire response and EMS ambulance response. Um, but uh, we're getting to the point where that is becoming uh, difficult to sustain. Christian, I want to pick up on that idea of that integrated response. Some people will criticize and wonder, why do I see a fire truck at an ambulance call? Can you explain to us the protocols and how that works? Well, some people will be critical of that type of model, but um, I can tell you it won't be the people that have had to call 911. So when you have to make that call, and many of us in our lifetime won't have to make it, and we'll go through life thinking we're never going to have to phone, but one day it happens and you have to phone. And uh, seconds count at times of life and death emergency. And uh, when you're waiting for that help to arrive, um, help arriving in 12 minutes, 59 seconds versus... Uh, four minutes, 30 seconds, or five minutes is a big difference. And for the patient, it can be the difference between life and death. Uh, we have an excellent model here in Winnipeg. We have, uh, we have highly trained ambulance paramedics who are advanced care paramedics. We have intermediate care paramedics and primary care paramedics on our ambulances. Um, we have a very robust system in terms of the pre-hospital care. We also have our primary care paramedics on our fire trucks. And uh, again, because of the geographic location of those vehicles, we're able to get a primary care paramedic at the patient's side uh, faster than any other service in Canada. 
And that provides us with the opportunity to get in quickly, assess the patient, and then make some decisions around whether we need a transporting ambulance or maybe that, that patient can wait a little longer for, for the ambulance to arrive. It's about getting the right resources to the right patient in the right amount of time. In studio with us, we have Christian Schmidt, who is the Deputy Chief of Operations for the Winnipeg Fire Paramedic Service. Loren McNabb, why is he here? We've been talking about the fact that we're seeing calls for service on the rise. A number of medical calls last year were up 32% compared to 2016. And just to pick up on something you said in the last segment, so we're seeing the number of incidents where you might have zero ambulances available slowly on the rise and your response times are slowly rising as well. And you mentioned that's an area of concern. So what is the tipping point when you have to say, we need more help? I think we're basically at that point now. So as I mentioned earlier, we uh, we have made internal changes within the organization uh, with interfacility transports, how we uh, dispatch IFTs, um, we've also uh, made a concerted effort to focus some resources on our EPIC program, the emergency paramedics in the community. But you're stretched as thin as you can go. Yeah, and one, one of the, the focuses of the EPIC program initially was focusing on our common callers. So these are people that um, make frequent use, uh, reaching out for assistance from 911. Uh, we know who these folks are. We've identified them through... Uh, the data that we collect and through the EPIC program we've made a concerted effort to focus uh, our efforts uh, with EPIC and these particular patients to to try to curb their use of 911 and actually get them connected with the resources that they really need to assist them uh, with the problems that they're encountering. So you've made these changes, you're at the tipping point now and in addition to the fact that your resources are stretched, we're seeing a growing number of sick days being called in by WFPS, EMS, ambulance, paramedics. I think it's up uh, about 12-13% over a few years and so the argument might be that your staff members are feeling overburdened or feeling the stress in their workload. Would you agree that that's part of the reason behind there's no argument to be had there at all. Um, that's, that's any, the reason any, you think? Anybody that's uh, working on the front lines knows uh, the impact that it that it has uh, on on the people. Uh, our folks are our most valuable resource, and uh, we know that they're feeling the pressure. Uh, everybody involved is feeling the pressure, and that includes our frontline firefighters, our frontline paramedics, and let's not forget our nine one one communications officers. Uh, they are the the frontline personnel that are uh, taking the 911 calls uh, day in and day out. Are the types of calls you're going to more traumatic? Uh, are there circumstances we're hearing, you know, that with this increase in crime, the the stress, the type of calls that fire and paramedics are, are being ans- answering and, and being asked to go to can be a little bit more arduous? So there's no doubt that uh, the crime... Uh, that we're seeing does have an impact or it is a driver on 911 and medical services in general and uh, that it does have an impact on on our staff. Uh, we uh, are currently doing some work uh, to, to look at that in the department and see what kind of things we need to put in place to ensure that our people have the appropriate training uh, to deal with uh, the violence that's being encountered in the community. And um, so that is something that we're that we're looking at at this time. Are the officials at City Hall listening to the fact that you're at this this point now, where you're stretched to the limit? Is, and we need we have ten seconds. So yeah, I think so. And we're working with uh, you know our partners at Shared Health as well. They're acutely aware of the numbers that we're seeing. Uh, we we meet with them on a very regular basis. Uh, again, later today we'll be meeting with them, and uh, this is uh, top of mind on everybody's list. Uh, we have to have a look at this, and uh, we, we need uh, we need solutions. 
Christian Schmidt, Deputy Chief of Operations for the Winnipeg Fire Paramedic Service, joining us live on CJOB. Christian, thank you for this. Thank you. Mackling, McGarry, McNabb. Greg, what was the question you were asking on Twitter over the weekend? That was pretty simple. Winnipeg becomes the only major city in Western Canada without Uber and Lyft. Are you okay with that? Had dozens of responses, some to the affirmative. Yeah, I'm actually okay with it because of Uber and Lyft's questionable business practices, the way they treat their drivers, and others saying that's, you know, we absolutely need this. And Jeff Berwadi was commenting on same, so I invited him to join us this morning. Jeff Berwadi represents North Kildonan on City Council. And uh, Councillor Berwadi, where do you stand on this? Is it is it time that we get on board with uh, these major ride-sharing companies being in our city? Yeah, I mean, most major cities across North America, literally around the world, like I've taken Uber and Lyft in places like uh, the Czech Republic, Poland, London. It used to be in China. It's not there anymore. I took it one time I was in China even. It's just, it's installed. It's easy to use. You don't have to think about it. Um, when people visit Winnipeg, like uh, Loren was saying, you got family coming in, you just kind of expect it to be there. It's, it's like a utility. It's a service. Why does it matter if it's Uber and Lyft? Why can't we be satisfied with the ride-sharing services we have? Because a lot of people have been texting in saying Tap Car, for example, is great. I'm wondering if it's just an example of how we've not sold some of the other options very well in the city. Does it really make a difference if it's Uber versus something else? I mean, taxis, Tap Car, Reride, they're, they're fine services. I, I took Tap Car last week even uh, home. Um, the services are fine, but again, they're just not as ubiquitous as the, as the other ones. Um, Part of the reason and the main reason that, that, that the other services don't exist here is the way that uh, insurance works. Um, in, in Manitoba, if you want to ri- work for one of these ride-hailing uh, companies like uh, uh, Tapcar, you have to go to MPI. You have to go down to your MPI agent. You have to tell them when you want to drive. You have to pay for insurance whether you give one ride or if you give hundreds of rides in a month. So a lot of people who do the type of, of driving for those companies now, they're basically doing it full-time. It's, it's basically like a taxi. The idea with with Uber and Lyft is it can be very casual and very part-time. You sign up, you go through the security checks, you get your vehicle tested, and then um, you can decide. You know, if you, um, you're a stay-at-home parent and you want to go and your kids are school-aged, you can decide you're only going to you know give rides during that one period. So in the Manitoba model, if you get that one band for timing, that's all you can drive and that's the only time you're insured to drive. With Uber and Lyft, it's like you're that same uh, stay-at-home mother all of a sudden on a Thursday night, there's a Jets game. and All of a sudden, there's a huge increase in demand. You'll get a little push message on your smartphone. Oh, by the way, if you start driving right now, you'll get 1.5 times or 1.7 times your regular pay rate. And it's like, hey, this is very, very interesting. And all of a sudden, you're going. See, the way it works in every other jurisdiction, including now in British Columbia and Saskatchewan, where they have public government-run insurance, you have your own uh, personal insurance on your vehicle, but from the moment you say, accept this ride, you go to pick up your customer and you transport them, it's run through an um, a insurance product that's offered to the ride-hailing company, Uber, Lyft, Topcar, whoever. So you're insured through a secondary insurance program through them. So, you know, if the ride is 20 bucks and 25% goes to, say, the ride-hailing company, that's for things like the credit card transaction as well as the insurance for that ride. It sounds like you're, you're incredibly knowledgeable what's going on. So what is the holdup with MPI? Are they unwilling to copy or to engage in the same sort of conversation and create the same system as SGI and ICBC have done in Saskatchewan and British Columbia? Well, I mean, they're just coming to the table now. Um, those products are, are very new in those areas. It was, I think, three or four years ago already where Mayor Bowman, something Mayor, Mayor and I actually agreed on, was the, the introduction of... Uh, uh, ride-hailing type services here in Manitoba, personal transportation providers, we have in our bylaws the language. Um, 
those services were brought into uh, the mayor. Actually, the state of city called for it to come. The province transferred the uh, ride for hire, the taxi cab piece, to the city of Winnipeg. And we have our own bylaws. We oversee both the operation of taxis and rail. Uh, Personal transportation providers like um, Tapcar, which and where Uber and Lyft would would also fa- fall in terms of our bylaws. Um, but again, because of the insurance piece, the two most major providers didn't come to town. Where does transit fit into this conversation about efficiently moving people around in this day and age that where people don't want to be consuming alcohol and driving, where people don't necessarily want to pay, pay fifteen or twenty dollars to park on an event night downtown, and people that maybe are looking and seeing transit and ride sharing as a more sustainable way, a more environmentally friendly, if if that's part of your agenda, way to get around. Couple different things. We're going through a major transit read right now. Right now, you know, the mayor made a comment at the state of the city on Friday. This isn't going to be your grandfather's transit. Some people said that was a bad thing because the transit used to be better. The reality is, people's working patterns, pe- the way things, um, way people live, has changed. Uh, s- sprawling suburbs, uh, people not working in the downtown core. So, you know, people's origins and destinations used to be more suited for a, uh, a transit system. Everybody coming from burbs into a central core. Now people, you know, work out of Polo Park here. They work out at the university. They work in industrial parks on Dougald Road, uh, Keniston Boulevard. They are much more car-oriented. So we're looking at this major revamp. We're going to be looking, I think, what we're going to see is we're going to see transit routes going where there's major streets. So there may be more transfers. It probably will be less convenient for some people, more convenient for, convenient for others. So transit's changing. But in terms of the whole multimodal piece, yeah, I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense that, you know, you take a transit bus one way and then the next mile you take a uh, uh, a rideshare vehicle. You might take an e-scooter even. Um, things are changing. And um, I think this is just a piece of it. It's not to take away from transit. We need a strong, fixed-based transit service. Um, in terms of the value and the return for, like, rapid transit routes, you know, they cost hundreds of millions of dollars. So, yeah. What was that last one? A scooter? An e-scooter? <laughs> I, uh, the cities like, you know, Minneapolis, for example, you have these Lime scooters. You get an app on your phone, you walk up to the scooter, you put your phone by it, and you... It's like a bike, but it's a scooter. It's not, and it's electrically powered, and you can go fairly fast on these things. There are uh, issues with people leaving them by emergency exits, and uh, there are uh, even accidents with them. But it is a thing in a lot of uh, Canadian and American cities now. Calgary has them. I look at Brett. Sounds Brett's fun. excited about it. Yeah. <laughs> they they are fun. Ride. I want yeah, to ride last scooter. mile. Somebody last did a remix piece. video of me on Twitter <laughs> riding one of these in Minneapolis with all sorts of sound effects. It's kind of fun. Right? <laughs> oh, <that's laughs> I'll have to look that up. City Councilor Jeff Ruotti joining us live on 680 CJOB. Councilor, thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Right now we want to continue the conversation about the legacy of Kobe Bryant, one of the greatest basketball players of all time, one of the greatest athletes of all time. And joining us right now, live on the start, is University of Manitoba men's basketball coach Kirby Shep. Kirby, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. Good to be with you guys. So my reaction was uh, just absolutely stunned when I learned that Kobe had died. What was your reaction when you heard the news? Yeah, I mean, obviously it's it's uh, really shocking. Uh, someone so young and obviously so unexpected and I mean, and someone who was really a global icon uh, more than he was an athlete in many, many ways. Um, you know, similar on the vein of uh, Michael Jordan or a uh, Muhammad Ali or, I mean, this is someone who was, you know, certainly not just famous for being an athlete, but famous for outside of sports much, much more than that. So it's absolutely shocking. 
Let's start with just the athleticism and what he did on the court because there would be a lot of people who know his name but may not get just sort of the impact he had on the game. So when you look back on his legacy, what are the things that stand out for you in terms of the impact just on the sport itself? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly he was, you know, the iconic athlete on probably the biggest franchise in in sports or one of the, you know, one or two biggest franchises in sports in the Los Angeles Lakers. I mean, uh, but I think his impact was felt more. I mean, we saw basketball take off as a, uh, certainly as a global uh, sport. Kobe was really at the center of that. And I mean, 350 million people are active basketball players and just in the country of China, uh, where Kobe is an absolute legend. I mean, and uh, certainly his impact is felt overseas in Europe and in many, many other places. But uh, certainly that'll, that'll be felt globally in worldwide. Why? Why, why? why did he have that impact there? What was he doing that made that difference? Yeah, I mean, he just had a certain charisma about him. He, he was certainly a showman. Obviously, he was, you know, one of the best players. I mean, it was, you know, I don't know how many of us, uh, you know, if every time we take a crumpled up piece of garbage and turn and fire it, and do we say Kobe, right, as we sort of... Uh, fire it there and uh, I think it was even bigger than that I mean he created something called uh, his sort of brand and called the Mamba mentality and if, I'll just I'll just share a, a story that I think sums up uh, Kobe Bryant uh, when I was in uh, in 2010 I was with the national team and I had a chance to sit down with uh, Jay Trano and uh, a number of the Raptors and we went to watch a, to a viewing party where we watched game seven of the NBA finals and Jay and I sat down and I asked Jay who he thought would win. And he looked at me and he said, well, Kobe isn't going to let them lose. And I said, you know, why, why do you say that? And he shared a story about Jay was an assistant coach with USA Basketball. And, uh, you know, that team had all the all the stars and a lot of the young stars, LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, all these guys were young players. And Kobe was a veteran on that team. And uh, he told Shield a story about during the training camp with USA Basketball. Jay went and uh, he, he went to get his own workout in on a, on a training camp day about 8 a.m. And he shows up to the workout facility and Kobe was already there. Uh, he had been there for hours. He was in a full lather with his two full-time strength coaches that he had hired to train with him and travel with him. And you know, he was in an incredibly difficult workout. And at the end of the workout, Jay asked him, you know, well, you know, you've been here a while. How long have you been here? And he said, well, that was a two-hour lift, but he said, I had my yoga session that started at 4 a.m. before that. And, you know, so Jay asked him, wow, I that's a lot. And what's the rest of your day like? He said, well, I go and my nutritionist makes me an ideally suited meal for my recovery. Uh, I come back. I got my three-hour three hour practice. So they had a 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. practice. against the best athlete in the world. He said, well, you know, I... Then I go and my nutritionist makes me a third, a second meal. Uh, then I have a scheduled nap. Then I come back and I uh, I do my skills workout. So Jay, of course, you know, really intrigued by this incredible you know, schedule, goes back, watches. He said it was the highest intensity skill workout he had ever seen. You know, and then he asked Kobe, "Well, you know, what are you doing after your workout? All the guys are, all the guys, of course, were in Vegas." You know, they may be going out to a club or a casino or, you know, enjoying Vegas a little bit. And, you know, they're all 20-year-old millionaires. And Kobe said, oh, no, I can't do any of that. My nutritionist has another meal for me. 
I've got to go to bed at 8 p.m. because my yoga instructor gets me up at 4 tomorrow morning to do it all again. Mm. You know, and that, to me, that's the mama mentality. And that sort of brought in a level of work ethic of almost insanity in terms of the level that he worked that, uh, that started to creep into to many athletes in, in many areas that, uh, you know, has certainly raised the level of the game. Is Kobe someone that you can use as a model for your students to say, hey, if you want to work hard, just look at what he did? Yeah, it's almost like, to be honest with you, not many people can. I mean, it would be incredibly rare to for people to have that level of personal discipline. It's almost like a, you know, just showing people, you know, what could be and where where, where the kind of bar is. And that was that was Kobe's thing. Was he basically wanted to outwork everyone? Now he wasn't without fault. I mean, he was uh, he was certainly known as a selfish player in many ways and a. And, you know, a player who didn't necessarily play well with others in many cases, but I think that came from being so incredibly prepared. I mean, you can imagine if you do that much work, uh, you don't trust anyone else. You, no one else has done the work you've done, and you know it. So the result becomes that you actually don't trust anyone else to take the big shot or do it more than yourself because no one's come close to putting in the work that you've put in. So... Uh, it's an interesting uh, and what he then termed as the Mamba mentality. Kirby Shep is the head coach of the University of Manitoba Bison's men's basketball team, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Kirby, thank you for this. Thanks very much, guys. Loren McNabb, today is uh, an important anniversary. Yeah, and just minutes ago, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau tweeted out uh, his remembrance and acknowledgement that today, 75 years ago, was the liberation of Auschwitz-Birkenau. And he says, we remember the more than 6 million Jews who were senselessly murdered during the Holocaust. This, of course, is also the International Holocaust Day of Remembrance. It's an important one for all of us to acknowledge and look back on what we've lost and what we've learned. And Bel is the executive director of the Jewish Heritage Centre of Western Canada in Winnipeg and joins us now. Good morning, Belle. Good morning. What are you thinking of this morning on this day? I'm thinking that never again is, is ringing quite hollow, that sadly here we are 75 years since the liberation with the number of survivors, the, the first-hand witnesses diminishing day by day and we are seeing not only a, a shocking resurgence of hate, of, of anti-Semitism, even, even in, in countries, you know, such as the United States, where Jews had uh, thought that they had found a safe haven, that toxic and dehumanizing rhetoric no longer seems taboo, even in democratic countries, um, that there is an ongoing and very upsetting attempt to distort the memory of the Holocaust itself, that collaboration and complicity are denied, that sometimes perpetrators in some countries are being glorified as heroes. Um, You know, I think of my own parents, of course, uh, who were survivors, who passed away many years ago, and how upset they would be to see what is happening in the world today. You say never again. Is this something that could potentially happen again one day? Well, you know, it's it's not just 
Jewish people. I, yes, I think it could happen again someday, but we're seeing genocide after genocide since 1945. We're seeing what's happened, you know, in recent years to the Rohingya, to the Yazidis. And is the world really standing up and taking responsibility and, and trying to do its best to fight genocide? Are we educating students enough uh, on, on the Holocaust and helping them to understand why this is important in fighting genocide? You talk about that education component. I know this morning you're speaking and, and there's going to be, I think you said hundreds of students attending a presentation. How key is that and what's the message from that? What are the stories that are being told today to them? Uh, well, it'll be it'll be twofold. I think uh, what is important is, of course, you know, they will learn in, in their classrooms, I'm hoping, um, about the history of the Holocaust. But I want to make them aware that the kind of hate that existed in from 1933 and which culminated in the genocide of approximately six million people that that rhetoric is still with us today that that imagery is still with us today uh talking about patrick matthews and the fact that there are approximately a hundred active violent uh, neo-nazi or fascist groups in canada today and that, you know, the story of Patrick Matthews really resonates and that back right here in Canada in the 1930s, we had some similar groups led, for instance, by William Whitaker, who was also uh, a veteran. And um, we need to stand up against this kind of hate. We need to be aware of it. And they, they need to know what's going on. If someone is victimized by hate speech, for example, is there something they can do rather than just maybe talk back to that person, but is there an avenue that they can go down to officially report it? I think that they should report it to the hate crimes unit of of our police force. You talked about some of the lessons that you've learned over the years and mentioning that your parents were Holocaust survivors. Mm -hmm. Is there a story that they told you, Belle, that you like to share with others? in terms of what they either went through or what life was like after for them as, as you try to learn from what they went through and the rest of us do as well? Well, both of them had extremely painful stories. My father was a survivor of six camps. Um, he lost every single person in his family, including his first wife and his child, who was uh, a toddler when they were sent to Treblinka and, and gassed, as was the rest of his family. Um, I think my father inspired me tremendously in and my mother by having the courage uh, to rebuild their lives here after all the terrible trauma that they had experienced. I think that this took great courage, but also that it was not so easy to find a new home because uh, I think this is and this is one of the things we address with with students when they come here that even after the end of the war, when the world knew what had happened to the Jewish people, um, Jews, as far as immigration in Canada until 1948, were described as uh, undesirables. And it was very difficult uh, to get in, in a time when Canada absorbed 180,000 immigrants in those first few years, only 8,000 Jews were, ta- were accepted. Um, so both of my parents applied to several countries 
And it took my dad until uh, late 1948 to get here and my mother until 1950. In my father's case, the only reason that he got in is because he was sponsored by uh, an, a very, very, very distant relative under a program called the Taylor's Project. There was a shortage of workers in the needlework trade. And in my mother's case, she had a distant relative who also sponsored her. What were their names, Belle? My dad's name was Samuel Jarneski, and my mother was Sylvia Jarneski. When you talk about the hate that we're seeing on the rise in this world, how do you think we can overcome that? I think we need to educate. I think that we need to start when kids are young, uh, educating them about not only about history, but about all the wonderful rich groups uh, that uh, rich, uh, you know, ethnic faith groups that make up our country and to learn more about what their traditions are, where people come from, because when you know uh, one another, it's really hard, I think, to develop these hateful ideas. Belle Jarniski, Executive Director of the Jewish Heritage Centre of Western Canada, joining us this morning on the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz-Birkenau. Thank you so much for your time, Belle. Thank you. Bye-bye. Just going to take you behind the curtain here because... When Jeff says, now back to the start, I go, Mike 1, Mike 2, Mike 5. But Mike, I just do it out of habit, Loren. Greg's not here. I turned on his microphone a moment ago. I should have ago. gone and sit over there. Maybe that would have made you feel better. Nah, I probably would have turned your mic I'd on. I'd have to like be on Twitter at the same time and sort of looking at you and sort of not, because he's always multitasking in that seat. But <laughs> Well, Greg Mackling left the studio about an hour ago, and he has headed out to meet a group of extraordinary youngsters who are doing great things for our community, and now he joins us on the phone. Greg, hello there, sir. Good morning, friends. Great to rejoin you. I uh, I have to mute my my tone here somewhat. In fact, I'm going to go out here because they're still wrapping up this fantastic assembly. We all remember assemblies as uh, maybe, for the most part, a way to get out of class for 20 minutes or half an hour. <laughs> yep. But today, at Ecole Lacerte, uh, they were welcoming the Saint, or pardon me, the Children's Hospital Foundation of Manitoba. Paula Kreitz was here to accept a check on behalf of the work that was done at this school. The grade four class led by Maxime Peltier put together a bake sale over five days and they managed to raise $746 for the Children's Hospital Foundation of Manitoba. So they're celebrating that today. How did they get involved in this in in terms of what made them want to jump on board with this initiative? Well, I haven't had a chance to interview Maxim, but I do have some inside scoop with him because, well, full disclosure, he's he's my fake nephew. He's one of my best friends. Son, he calls me Uncle Greg, and uh, his sister is actually my goddaughter. And so uh, Maxim said, Uncle Greg, I, I raised this money. He says, I hope you could be there just to uh, celebrate with us. And essentially it was uh, an understanding of what's going on in the community. They wanted to do a philanthropic project and they decided that Children's Hospital Foundation should be the benefactor of that. And so here we are today. And Greg, when people hear the the total $746, some initial reactions might be, well, that's not a lot of money, but A, these are kids doing this and B, every dollar counts. 
hundred percent. And if we needed any proof, any more proof, uh, just look at what happened, the magic that was created on Friday during the HSC Radiothon. Their goal was $185,000, but because of the 5 the 10 the 20 the $50, the $70 donations, they completely crushed their target by $27,000. And the $5, the $10, the $746, all those donations, they add up. And I think the bigger lesson here for the kids, and they were so excited to uh, share their success and to have the rest of their, their school acknowledge what was going on, just this idea of giving back to the community and understanding that at any age you can be thinking about other people. And that, that message really seemed to get the kids excited. I think that's such a great point, Greg. It's always that even as adults, we say something like, well, what can we do or what difference we can make, right? And, and little things, the quarters and the 75 cents for a muffin or whatever they charge really add yeah. up. There's no question about it. And just that whole idea of getting your kids involved. Uh, and it doesn't have to be a financial endeavor. It doesn't have to be raising money. But just getting your kids involved and giving back time, whether it's to an official organization or something in your community that, that waves a flag of a certain type. Just little things like shoveling your neighbor's sidewalk, uh, whether they need you to do it or not. Just thinking of other people uh, at times when we get overly consumed with this this me culture and not everybody's involved in it, but this is just one way to overcome it and to uh, instill in our kids this idea that there are other people in the world who are not as lucky as we are. And I just shared the message, that idea. You never want to have to go to Children's Hospital, but if you do go there, you want it to be as awesome a place as it can be and that 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 by doing what they did, they're, they're having an impact, whether it's for themselves, someone they know, or someone they've never met. It's, it's just a, a way to give back and to, to think about other people, your neighbors. Well, and Greg, there's there's a way even to t- sort of indirectly tie this back to a conversation we had in our previous half hour on this International uh, Holocaust Day of Remembrance on the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz-Birkenau. And uh, Bel Jarniewski with the Jewish Heritage Centre of Western Canada was talking about how, you know, in order to overcome hate, we need to educate people and start educating them at an early age. And these kids here at Ecole Lacerte are being educated, as you pointed out, to, to think of your neighbors. They're learning all kinds of positive things about how to embrace uh, your community, how to learn empathy, and that will have positive side effects like learning to love your neighbor rather than hate your neighbor. I think that's a great point, Brett. And we can get caught up in, in building these silos. Uh, we spend more and more time in our own homes these days, and we spend more and more time with like-minded people, people who look and sound and talk like us. This is this is a French immersion school. My friend, Brett, you would have been better suited to, <laughs> to speak here this morning, uh, but they, they welcomed me en français, and I addressed them in English, and, and there was a, a, a genuine sense of appreciation for uh, not only... Uh, what Children's Hospital Foundation does, but the, to give the, the students here an opportunity to share their story. And, and you're right, Brett, just that whole idea about building love and care and affection for one another, even though you, you might not know somebody's entire story, but just something that you can do nice for somebody else and, and tying it back to, to the, 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 the 
what we're recognizing today with Auschwitz and, and, and Birkenau, I think, is a tremendous, a tremendous tie in, Brett. Where is École Lassert, by the way? It is in Windsor Park. It's on Autumn Wood. And uh, I really got lucky finding this place because <laughs> I entered it into my into my GPS, I, I put the wrong number. The address is 1101 Autumnwood. I put 11 Autumnwood. I could really take you to the wrong spot, yeah. <laughs> Knocking on a door, being like, do you have a French immersion school right under <laughs> your basement? <laughs> or... <laughs> and you, figured it out. And then uh, another important question, were you able to some, secure some baked goods for us? No, the baked goods, I, I'm afraid were... Uh, baked, consumed, sold uh, back in 2019. So I'm not so sure you would have wanted any of those anyway, Brett. Uh, yeah, I guess so. It probably probably would have gone stale by now. Yeah, I, I, I think that's the, the best move all the way around. So I'm going to talk to some of the kids after they conclude their assembly here and uh, we'll work uh, some of their, their uh, incredible thoughts into the conversation tomorrow morning if we have time. Greg Mackling joining us live from Ecole Lacerte in Windsor Park. Greg, thank you very much, sir. My pleasure, my honor. And once again, congratulations to the kids involved in this. $746 raised for the Children's Hospital Foundation through a bake sale last year over the course of five days. As we said, every dollar helps. And as Greg pointed out, and just a reminder in case you missed how much money was raised on Friday in the HSC Foundation Hope to Life Radiothon presented by Merrick Holmes, $212,000. The goal was one seventy-five. dollars Thanks to your generosity. Manitoba, once again, showing they are the most generous of, of regions. $212,000. So thank you so much to all of our listeners who contributed to HSC Foundation and contributed to Manitoba's hospital. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. We are very excited this week because we have those tickets to give away for Diavolo, Architecture in Motion. That's happening Friday, January 31st at the Burton Cummings Theatre. Again, go to our 680CJOB Instagram story if you want to see video. But next week, we are also excited about this prize that we're giving away. We have secured tickets for the Saints and Sinners 2020 Tour. Great name, and this uh, is it's a, a great. There's a wine called Saints Sinners. So you texted really? me last night and said, "Can we? We need to uh, don't forget our Saints and Sinners." And I was like, "How did I miss the wine giveaway we're doing?" <laughs> That's like instantly what I thought. Where's that? Where's it from? Saints and Sinners. I don't know. It's wine. <laughs> it's it's wine. Yeah. Do you know what kind of grape? No, it's red. It's, it's a red, red grape. It, it's red. That's good enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's red. It's wine. But that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> well, perhaps you can have some Saints and Sinners wine at this show. So this is happening. Bell MTS Place, Wednesday, July 8th. We're playing the Tea Party Temptation right now because it's the Tea Party. Moist. And I know you hate that word, Loren, and mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Nobody likes that word. Big Wreck and the Headstones, they're all teaming up for this awesome tour, cross-country tour, and we're going to have tickets to give away for this next week. Tickets are already on sale. They went on sale this past Friday, but you can get tickets with us here on The Start next week. And it's kind of, I think this is exciting because probably for a lot of members of our audience, this will take you back to your youth. Like the Headstones, they were the the first concert I ever went to 
was the Headstones and the Watchmen. How old were you? I was 18. Yeah. It was 1995. It was June 1995. I just graduated. Yeah, like the day before I had my safe grad and graduation. It was at the X back when... Uh, they used to have that stage in the the old Winnipeg Stadium. So I had seats on the floor, and I was just like, you know, kind of trying to take in all this crazy atmosphere. Hugh Dillon from the Headstones comes out. I'm sitting in about 10th row, and he just comes out. And I'd heard he, like, spits on the audience and that he's kind of a cantankerous. It's part of his shtick. And first thing he says, lose the chairs. So then chaos ensues. Chairs start flying. People are jumping on the chairs. And they're just, it was like this swarm. Oh, I love it, though. I love that idea. I've often thought that about the floor. I came to, I bought floor seats to sit here. I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah, Especially at a concert like that. No kidding. So it was it was super fun. And I was just far enough back that I could just stand on my chair and watch because I didn't want to jump into that melee just yet. Because like I said, it was my first time going to a concert. I was intimidated. But yeah, so when I hear that the Headstones is te- are teaming up with Big Wreck, the Tea Party, and Moist, all bands I loved in my younger years, this is going to be a great show. Bell MTS Place, Wednesday, July 8th, and we have tickets to give away all week long next week on the start. And you can give, you can buy tickets if you want. Don't want to wait. You can. You can buy them or you can get them free here. Chris is texting now. How did I not hear of this concert? What a killer lineup. He's right. It is, yeah. By the way, Sinners and Saints, or Saints and Sinners, is a Shiraz. It's a Shiraz. You Googled it. You found so it. It doesn't go with these bands. Ah. It, who says it doesn't? It goes with a hard day after work when you're poor. <laughs> so we will have <laughs> a hard day after work when you're poor. What is it, like a $9 bottle? I think it's 12 What I'm saying is I know it well. <laughs> Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.